here in chapter 1, verse 27, Paul writes and he says, Only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you or am absent, I may hear of you that you are standing firm in one spirit, with one mind, striving side by side for faith, for the faith of the gospel. And he goes on to say, and not frightened in anything by your opponents. This is a clear sign to them of their destruction, but of your salvation and that from God. For it has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ, you should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake, engaged in the same conflict that you saw I had and now here that I still have. So Paul is writing. He's writing from prison and he's writing to the church in Philippi, and so he's writing to believers, okay? So this isn't an evangelistic letter that was sent out to unbelievers. It is a letter that was sent to the church, and so it is written to those who believe. And Paul writes to those who believe, and he says, let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel, which means there is a way to live that is in line with and worthy of the gospel, and that the converse is also true, that there is a way to live, way to live and a manner of life that is not worthy of the gospel. And so those two things we need to hold in tension and understand that while the gospel is a gospel of faith and not of works, the faith from God never remains apart from works, right? Luther would teach that the faith that comes from God is never alone, meaning it's never divorced apart from works, but works are a result of faith. The problem is, is that we often get that turned around and we try to establish works before faith. And in doing so, we preach a false gospel that says that our right standing with God and our membership in God's church is according to what we've done instead of what Christ has done for us and the faith that we have in that. That would be wrong and it's heresy and it's not right, okay? But when we come to faith in Christ, there's this miraculous thing that happens. And let us not forget that faith is a miracle, right? There is a reasoning that we can have that can lead us to faith, but faith itself is a miracle. And so you'll hear stories of people who say, I was absolutely an opponent of God, and I knew it. C.S. Lewis would be one of those people, uh, one of the great thinkers and writers of the last century who was absolutely, 100%, knowingly, willingly at odds with God. He could not reason himself to this God of the Bible in, in, a, in a scientific way, and he was an atheist by choice. But what happened was a miracle, a miracle of faith. And as he began to meet with J.R. Tolkien and uh, G.K. Chesterton in a pub, sharing beers and talking theology and mythology and writing together, over that time, those friends began to talk to him about faith in a way that was different than he had ever heard, and yet still he rejected it. 
And yet one day he writes, he tells a story of how he got in his brother's sidecar of his motorcycle. They were headed to somewhere in particular. And when he got into the sidecar, he was an atheist. And when he got out at their destination, he was a believer. Why? Because the Holy Spirit chose in that moment to give C.S. Lewis the gift of faith. It was a miracle. And so even though he had reasoned himself away from it, there was this miraculous gift of faith that stood uh, not in contrast to his reasoning, but brought him to a place where his reasoning and faith met. And it was a miracle. Uh, you'll hear other people with similar stories where they say, I completely reject the God of the Bible. There's nothing that, that, that could lead me in that way. And then God, by the Holy Spirit, will say, too bad I chose you. Give them the gift of faith. And they believe contrary to what they even want to do. And their testimony will even be such that they say, actually, I never wanted to be saved. God rescued me. He saved me. He did the work. Why? Because our salvation is all of grace. It's all of God. It's not by works. But here's the miracle that happens. Sin doesn't make you bad. It makes you dead. And when God chooses to give you the faith to believe, he causes your spirit, which is up until that time dead, to be regenerated, to come to life. And now you live in a way that you never experienced. And in that moment, the Holy Spirit begins a process of changing the desires of your heart. And by changing the desires of your heart, new works or new fruit or the new product of that is good works in your life. And so we can say that good works are a product of a heart and a life that has been filled with faith in Jesus Christ. And so in that, we learn that there is a way to live that, that is contrary to the gospel, and there is a way to live that is in line with the gospel. And as a body of Christ and being a member in Christ's church, our heart's desire given to us by the Holy Spirit should be, I want to live a life that is in line with the gospel. If there is something inside of us that says, no, I don't want to live a life that's in line with the gospel, then there are a couple of things going on there. Either there's some maturity that needs to come and there's still some work that needs to be done in that believer's life, or maybe you haven't really been saved. And that's something that you need to walk through and work out. And it's something we're going to talk about here. Because if you are a believer and the Holy Spirit has regenerated your heart, then he will give the desire to obey. Now, that doesn't mean every single minute of every single day, you only want to obey Christ. It means that through this life and the process of being a Christian and the work the Holy Spirit is doing, he is in the process of conforming you to the image of his son. And so there should be this deepening desire over the course of your journey of faith to be more like Jesus, to be more in line with the gospel. And when the Bible, the word of God, shows you that you are out of line with the gospel, there should be a, a good and right sorrow over those things and then a simultaneous rejoicing 
that even though in this moment I'm not in line with the gospel, God has not rejected me. His love is still for me. I'm still forgiven, and he has given me an opportunity right now to repent and to get in line with the gospel and carry on from this point on. Amen? Praise God. So Paul's writing to believers... He's saying there's a manner of life that is worthy of the gospel and a manner of life that's not. He even says here, don't lose sight of this in verse uh, 28, not being not frightened in anything by your opponents in this instance. Uh, he could be talking about Rome. I mean, Paul is in prison as he writes this for the sake of the gospel, for preaching the gospel and proclaiming the gospel. And there are opponents of the gospel who would be quite happy to throw the Christians in Philippi into prison or worse as well. So he's saying, don't be frightened by them. But what does he say? That their faith and living a life that is lived Worthy of the gospel is a clear sign, verse 28, to them of their destruction, but of your salvation and that from God. What does that mean? What is Paul saying here? He's saying what we've said, that the lives and the community of believers are a living apologetic to those who don't believe. So as you live your life in a manner that's worthy of the gospel and you do that in conjunction with other believers that this community of faith and your life in particular becomes an apologetic for the gospel. Now, it doesn't become the gospel because the gospel is a message. So some people have wrongly quoted St. Francis of Assisi saying that he said, which he didn't, preach the gospel to every living creature and if you have to, use words. He never said that, and it is a falsity to say that. Why? Because the gospel is words. There is no gospel apart from words because gospel is a message. It's the good news about the life, the death, the burial, and the resurrection of Jesus Christ for you and in your place. So you living in a particular way does not become the gospel. So you doing good things never causes anyone to look at you and go, wow, you just did something really good. Jesus must have came to earth, lived a perfect life for me and in my place, died on the cross for my sin, was dead, buried, and then came back to life for me and in my place. That's not going to happen apart from a proclamation of that truth. Now, they may come to you and go, um, I just watched you and what you walked through in the last month because of whatever happened in your life. You lost your job or you suffered through loss in your family or, or maybe you experienced something great and how you responded to something great happening in your life. And someone may go, I watched you and there's something about how you responded to all this stuff going in your, on in your life that is not how I would respond because of X, Y, and Z. You need to tell me what's up with that. Well, what, what's happening there? Your life is being an apologetic for, an apology for, an answer for the gospel. It doesn't become the gospel. It becomes an apologetic for the gospel. And in that moment, you can say, well, actually, the reason I was, the only reason I can even cling to or even mention that would cause me to act any differently than what you just said you, you would act or how you would respond is simply because... I have faith in Christ 
And that opens an opportunity for you then to proclaim the actual gospel, which gives them an opportunity then to hear, even as you heard once upon a time, and to respond in faith, believing if the Holy Spirit intends in that moment to do that. So don't lose sight of that. That's a beautiful thing, that God has designed membership in the church in this community of faith in such a way that we together collectively and then also individually are apologetics for the gospel. And, and I mean, hear what it says, right? Jesus is a tree-hugging hippie, right? That's what everyone wants us to believe. It's all rainbows and, and lollipops. What does it say? It says that your life living in, in a manner that's worthy of the gospel is what? a clear sign to them of their destruction, but of your salvation and that from God. So when we live in a manner that's worthy of the gospel, it, it really puts people at odds because they begin to see there's a way that these people are heading that's leading to life and there's a way that I'm leading that's leading to death, living that's li- leading to death. And the life that they have is not because of what they did. So if anyone comes and says, "What well, you, you are awesome, you do good, you, 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 we should be deflecting and saying, no, 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 you don't understand fully. You see, there's this God, and he sent his son. And if it wasn't for the work of Jesus Christ and the Holy Spirit at work in me right now, none of this would be possible, right? Which means what? Our salvation is all of God. And if it's all of God, what does that mean for those who are headed to destruction? There's hope for them too, right? So they're going, I, I can see that the way I'm living is leading to destruction, the way the life that you're living is leading to life, and, and I have no hope to do what you do. I can't do what you do. And you can be like, that's okay. I, I can't do it. If it was all up to me, I couldn't do it either. Amen? So let's jump into chapter 2. So Paul says, so if there is any encouragement in Christ... Is there? Yes. Any comfort from love? The love of God? Is there comfort in the love of God? Absolutely. Is there any participation in the Spirit? And another way you could translate that, is there any fellowship that has been initiated by the Spirit? Yes. I'm suddenly surrounded by friends and family that I never would have had apart from the body of Christ. Absolutely. Uh, And not forgetting, I also now have fellowship with God himself through the Spirit. Any affection and sympathy? Yes, there is. Paul says, basically, you can insert, then complete my joy. How? By being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others, having this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. Now, don't miss that. So even here, Paul is calling you to some specific things, but then he said those things, and especially the mind which you are going to need to be able to do these things, is what? Yours, it's already yours, in Christ Jesus. So if you have Christ, we would say you already have everything that you need. 
that all the, the riches and the treasures of grace are stored up in Christ. And if you have Christ, everything you need in him you already possess. And so it is in Christ that we already have this mind. And then Paul says, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant. Being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Now, uh, some scholars believe that verses 5 through 11 there are actually Paul either in that moment composing or writing out something that had already been composed, a hymn of the early church. So as Paul launches into this very poetic sort of uh, prose about Christ, which really is just this explanation of the gospel, Though he was in the form of God, he didn't count equality with God something to be grass. He emptied himself. He took the form of the servant. So see the condescension of the Son of God coming down to earth, right, in the form of a man. Emptied himself, took on the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. This is the gospel. Paul is proclaiming the gospel through what is presumably this hymn of the church, this beautiful hymn of the church. Really just proclaiming that. And Paul's saying, because of this now, verse 12, Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now, not only as in my presence, but much more in my absence, key verses here, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who works in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Again, don't miss here that Paul is again connecting the thing that you are meant to do with a work that God is doing through you. So God's not calling you to do something on your own, in your own power, but rather is connecting the good that's meant to come out of you with the work that God is doing through you. He would say in different places in the New Testament, uh, Galatians 2.20, for example, for I've been crucified with Christ, is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. So the good that's being done, is it really me? No, it's God at work in me. It's Christ at work in me. And the bad that I do, is that even really me? Paul would say in Romans 7 that even that, no, if you are a believer, is actually sin at work in your flesh as well. So what do I have to boast in in either direction? Nothing. The only thing I have is what? Nothing in my hands I bring, only to the cross I cling, that, that I cling only to the grace and the mercy of God. So in that, Paul says, Do all things without grumbling or disputing, that you may be blameless and innocent, children of God without blemish in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation. Again, see that, that beautiful display of the gospel being lived out in the context of a culture and a people who reject it. Among whom you shine as lights in the world, holding fast to the word of life, which is the gospel, so that in the day of Christ, Paul says, I may be proud that I did not run in vain or labor in vain, even if I am to be poured out as a drink offering upon 
the sacrificial offering of your faith, I am glad and rejoice with you all. Likewise, you should be glad and rejoice with me. So we're going to kind of refer back to this chapter 2, 1 through 18 here as we walk through the rest of the day. But I wanted you to kind of get that in full picture. So we kind of got the full picture of the context of the verse. We've, now we've stepped back from it. We've seen the whole thing. Here's this letter Paul's writing to the church. There's a manner of life that is worthy of the gospel. There's a manner of life that is not. He describes the gospel itself and then also the manner of life that is worthy of it, which is what? Be of one mind and of one heart. Love each other. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or conceit. Uh, he says... Do things without grumbling or disputing. He says uh, that we should obey uh, the word of, of faith. And he goes on and on and on. So we're going to carry on with that. Uh, so this will really kind of be uh, a, something that we refer back to through the rest of the day. But I want to quickly talk about different roles in the church. So kind of my job today is to talk about church roles, R-O-L-E-S, not double L-S like at a potluck, okay? Those can be amazing as well, okay? And someday we'll talk about church roles, R-O-L-L-S. But today we're talking about church roles, R-O-L-E-S, and discipline. Um, and so one of the things that I did just quickly is I kind of just very basically lined out what are, what are the roles in a church? And, and it really... I mean, and, and we probably could dive much deeper into this and, and sub kind of categorize these things. But very basically, I said there are just a few roles. Uh, one role, uh, roles that would be present today, this morning. One role could be a guest. And, and what I said was an observant guest. Uh, another role I said would be a non-member participant. Then I said there could be members also leaders or deacons or elders and sorry not or and elders a different role and lastly father son holy spirit our triune god present with us all the time so what is an observant guest how would we view an observant guest an observant guest would be someone who has either come of their own initiation because However they found us, they found us, or hopefully they've been invited. Uh, this could either be a believer or an unbeliever. If it's someone who found us of their own sort of initiated action, it's probably a believer. If it's someone who's been invited, hopefully it probably is an unbeliever. But they are an observant guest, and their role is one of simply observing, being present, and observing the community of faith, being welcome here in this place, welcome to come and see what this is all about, to hear uh, the message of the gospel, to observe the community of faith and their interaction, the community's interaction with each other, their God, and the world around them. So an observant guest is simply someone who's able to come and be welcome to observe both the message and the community, and what all that entails. Um, and we want people to be welcome here. So this isn't, this isn't sort of a members-only-at-the-door situation, but this, these doors are open, honestly, to anyone. 
And so the, the pipeline to the church is wide open at the front door. There's no one that we would uh, at first glance deny access to the gathering of the church. Uh, the second uh, role that I said could be present here today would be a non-member participant. So this is someone who maybe is a little different than a guest because they've carried on attending. Like they keep on coming, but they haven't quite crossed that line into membership. And so there may be a couple of things going on there. One, they could still be an unbeliever, but have experienced a benefit of attending and being around the community of faith. And so they want to carry on attending. Perhaps they are intrigued by the message of the gospel. Perhaps the Holy Spirit is doing a work in their heart of preparing them for faith. Perhaps the Holy Spirit has already given them faith and they don't even realize it yet. They haven't come to that moment where they realize that faith has already been given. And that's okay. Or they could be a believer uh, who is still just exploring this particular community and faith in general, um, but as a non-member participant who, if we know they're a believer, we are continually inviting them to repent uh, and believe in a greater way. If they're an unbeliever, we will continue to encourage them to repent and believe in a primary way uh, to receive salvation, and still they are Welcome. If they are a believer and they've been around for a while and they want to start to get involved in a more deep way, then we would encourage them to join in covenant. And so here's the first time I'm using this word today, and we'll use it a few times. The word covenant, we'll break that down a little later, what that means. We would invite them to join as a member in covenant to grow in maturity in Christ and to serve in love this body and submit to the authority and accountability of the church. A member is someone who has done that, right? So a member is, first of all, a believer. So here in that, the, the pipeline just got a little narrower, right? There's a little bit of a bottleneck there. Why? Because to be a member in the church, welcome, brother, to be a member in the church means that you are a believer in Jesus Christ. So to be a member, first of all, you have to be a believer. And so being a member, we would say, is someone who has covenanted themselves and their family to this body to grow in maturity in Christ and to love and serve in and through this body to the glory of God. Uh, the next thing we would say that there can be, so there are guests, there are people who are non-members but participating in the body of Christ here locally, and then there are those who are members, which means there's a requirement of, of believing, of faith on that person to be an actual member. Would we withhold anyone from, from participating in the church body? No. Would we withhold, withhold membership on the basis of faith? Yes, absolutely, and that is biblical. Um, the next thing there can be are leaders, and kind of a secondary word for that in the Bible is also deacons. 
These are members who in the course of growing in maturity in Christ and loving and serving this body begin to do so in a way and fashion which shows a capacity for leading other members. And so this is someone who has uh, already shown themselves to be leading in some sense and then are invited to lead in a greater capacity. And that could be, uh, in a sense, um, here on a Sunday morning and helping out with different things that need to be done. It could be in a position of hosting or leading a missional community in their home where they're inviting people to come in and, and they become responsible in a, in a certain sense for the people who come and gather in their home for meals and, and for discipleship. That could be a leader and a deacon. And then another role beyond that would be what we call elders. Uh, in the Bible, sometimes, depending which book of the Bible, and which translation you're using, the word that could be used there would be elder, it could be uh, over-shepherd, it could be pastor. All those things are not different roles, but simply one role with different names. Uh, under-shepherd as well, depending which translation you use. So elders, what we would say are under-shepherds, members first. So elders of the church are not separate from the church, but they are first and foremost members of the church that they are a part of leading. And they are leaders in the church responsible, according to Hebrews chapter 13, for watching over the souls of the members of the church as those who will have to give an account. And this role of eldership is a calling, not by men, but of God. And so, but it is men who affirm the calling that God has placed on someone else. So this isn't an office that is meant to simply be appointed uh, because we think, well, they might do a great job. But rather, it's, it's an office that's meant to be appointed because of calling. And it is an affirmation of a work that God has already done in someone's life. And that may seem weird, but we do that already in a lot of ways. How do we do that? Baptism is the same thing. Baptism is an outward affirmation of an inward work that God has done in bringing faith to someone's life. Marriage. Marriage is an outward affirmation of a work that God has already done inwardly to bring two people together. And so in the same way, there should be an already present of the calling of God on someone's life or it should become present in someone's life and be able to be affirmed after some time. And so this role is a calling and it's meant to be affirmed rather than appointed and we would be absolutely remiss if we failed to mention that there is one more role of someone who is present in our gatherings every single time and that is the role of God in our gatherings. And God is present, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, every time that we gather together and we praise uh, our Godhead for what he's done for us. Amen? So when I talk about church roles, and that's kind of what I'm talking about. And for our discussion primarily, we're going to be really dealing with members and elders and leaders, okay? And so... When we talk about membership in the church, we've said that first and foremost, to be a member in the local body means that you are a believer. And I can't stress that enough. And here's why. If you are not a believer, 
then I have no authority over your life. Because in order for me to have authority over your life, you must first submit to the authority that Christ has over your life, that God has over your life, because the only authority that I can have over anyone is only an authority that God has given me that is in, in subservience to God and Christ's authority. So if you're not a believer and I'm sitting here trying to reason with you and be like, brother, your life is not in line with the gospel right now. Inside of you, there should be this thing going, well, so what? <laughs> Who are you to tell me what to do, right? Well, if you're not a believer, I've, I've got no pull there and there's no reason for me to even be talking to you about living a life that's in light of the gospel because you haven't received the gospel. And so my position then should be one of evangelism of saying, here is the gospel. Here is how you can be saved from destruction. Here's what Christ has done for you and on your behalf. Repent, believe, be baptized, and join the family. Right? So there could really be a lot of, of murky water if... We were just like, hey, you want to be a member? Come on, be a member, man. You, you're not saved. That doesn't matter. Of course it matters. Because when we start getting into real life issues, if you're not a believer and we're taking that from granted because you're a member of the church, we allowed you to be a member of the church, there's going to be some serious, serious friction and problem there. Does that make sense? So that really is for your good and for the good even of unbelievers because it would be better for them not to be included in membership and to be able to receive the gospel fully before being included in that membership so that there doesn't, because there could be some real um, disillusionment for someone if they're not really a believer but we took that for granted and tried to exercise authority over their lives that we don't actually possess. Does that make sense? All right. So as we talk about different roles that are present in the church of Jesus, it's easy for us to see things in a hierarchical view. Okay, And even as I said this, I said, well, there's, there's people who aren't members, and then there's members, and there's people who are leaders over those members, and then there's even people who are even more leaders over the leaders and those members. And it's easy for us to see that in kind of a flow chart, hierarchical view that puts some people over and above other people. Now, while we have to lead, and to lead means to be out front and move forward, it does not mean that the leaders in the church are somehow over and above the other members of the church. So hear me when I said that leaders and elders in the church are called first and foremost to be members of the church. Which means that they never get out of and above the authority of the church as well. And so we don't as elders of the church, we don't exist outside the realm of the accountability and the authority of the local church. We exist inside the realm of the authority and the accountability of the local church and have to lead as co-equals members of the body of Christ. So those who lead are not leading as those who are over and above, but rather as equals 
um, whom God has simply chosen for the task. It's easy for us to see that hierarchical view because we're used to that. We're used to a system of structures that elevate one person above another. Our whole lives are kind of lived in those structures. But in Jesus' church, things are done differently, right? The disciples start having an argument about who's greater in the kingdom of God right before Jesus is about to head to the cross. And what does he do? He strips off his clothes, he grabs a cloth, and he washes his disciples' feet and says that those who are going to be the greatest must become the least, that those who want to lead must become the servants of all, that the first become last and the last become first, that there is a different type of economics in the kingdom of God than in the kingdom of the world. And we have to keep that in the forefront of our minds. So what is this more like? And, and this is not a perfect example, okay? So hear me when I say this is not a perfect example, but when I began trying to come to some kind of way of explaining this, this is what I came up with, all right? So this is more like a teacher in a classroom who appoints a student to direct his fellows from the front of a line on a particular day, right? So class, we've got to move from where we are right now, down the hall, turn left, turn right to the lunchroom or to wherever. If you ever were in a class where you had to do this, usually in primary school, right? That's when you had to like line up at the door and, you know, wait and all go together. Sometimes if you got really bad, you had to put your, you know, you're really out of line. You had to put your hand on the other person's shoulder. Okay, never mind. So here's the deal. The person that the teacher chooses on that particular day to lead the class is not any more or any less than the rest of his class fellows, right? Any more or any less than the rest of his classmates. He's still a student. He just has been chosen by the teacher to lead on that particular day. He's been placed in a role where he must lead his classmates to where the teacher has indicated and today he's at the front of the line, but tomorrow he may be placed at the back of the line. And while there may be jokes uh, about being teacher's pet or worse, his position has by no means elevated his standing with the teacher, right? That is only in the minds of the students, right? In reality, that student's position has not elevated somehow in the mind of the teacher where that teacher somehow... He's somehow risen above the status of student in the class, right? He is or she is still simply a student in the class. Are you follow me? Yeah. All right. He's simply carrying out a specific task on behalf of someone who is in greater authority than himself. Pastors and elders in the church are not in a higher standing with God. We're not in a separate class of believers um, that is somehow more enlightened or privy to special knowledge that you are not allowed to understand. The Bible we preach from hopefully is the same Bible that you have access to on a daily basis. And as we said on week number one, Everything that we teach here, everything that we walk through has to first and foremost come from Scripture alone. Can I get an amen for that? Amen. All right. Help me here. We have the same Bible, okay? And so we're called to, however, 
by God to carry out a specific task. So elders are called to carry out a specific task of leading his church, and we are called to do this with much patience and teaching. So has God given elders authority in the local church? Yes. How are they called to exercise that authority? With much patience and teaching. So it's not, you're out of line, boom, right? Like, this is Sparta. Get out. That's not what we're called to do. That would be taking our authority to a place that God has not given us to have. All right? Uh, is there ever a time where, as elders of the church, we would be called to excommunicate someone from membership in this local body? Yes, there are those times. Those are very serious matters. And never, ever, ever should those uh, situations be handled with glee. If, if we handle a situation where we are excommunicating a member of the church, that should be done with much sorrow and awe at the grace of God and with, with trembling. And I pray that we never have to do that. A year and a half in, praise God, we haven't had to do that. <laughs> but if that happens, then we are ready to walk through that season of time. And it will not be something that we do quickly. And it will not be something that we do with glee, but rather with sorrow. So while elders are not existing in some kind of realm over and above the church, let me tell you uh, where there is a difference. The difference is in accountability with God. And so even in our reading this week as a church, we were in James. And in James chapter 3, James warns and cautions and he says, not many of you be teachers. Because as teachers, we will be held to a higher standard before God. And, and what is the role of elder in the church? It's really that of a teacher, of preaching and proclaiming the gospel message and teaching uh, the body of Christ how to live in a manner that's worthy of the gospel. And so in a directional sort of way, uh, well, first and foremost, we're called to do this job with much patience and teaching, and then also studying hard to, as Paul exhorted Timothy to do, study hard to show ourselves approved of this calling that God has placed on us for this good work. And what is exact, exactly that we're leading the church to? In a sense, heaven. In a sense, heaven. Why? Because we are called in the New Testament as believers in Jesus Christ. The Bible tells us that we are aliens and foreigners in this land, that we are called to live as sojourners, people who are on a journey from one place to another. And what is our destination? It's heaven. It's home with Christ. And as people who have citizenship in a different land, the local church becomes Again, not a perfect example, but a way to try and help us understand this. The local church becomes, for believers, like your embassy. So I had the privilege of living a part of my life overseas in a different country. And in that different country, I had the 
benefit of knowing that there was an U.S. embassy in the city I was living in. The problem was I did not take advantage of that embassy. I never went and registered at that embassy. And therefore, while I had the benefit of knowing it was there, I did not have all the benefits that that embassy would have offered to me while I lived there. Things that, I mean, you ready for this? Result that were gatherings of other citizens of the United States together for fellowship and eating and hearing news about the United States. Wait a minute, that sounds an awful lot like what happens at church, right? What do we do? What benefit is afforded to members of the local church? a benefit of gathering together with other citizens of the same place to hear the news of the kingdom, right? Wow. So it's not a perfect example, but it's a pretty darn good example, right? Unfortunately, I did not afford myself of that advantage while I was there. I should have. Uh, but for believers, a local church becomes like an embassy, giving you a point of contact that is a comfort and a protection for you, uh, a reminder of home that, that is afar off. Uh, it, it puts you in fellowship with people who understand you and can relate to your journey of being an outsider and a sojourner in a foreign land. But also that embassy can become like a guardrail of government, which is maybe why I never registered at my embassy. Um, shame on me, um, to exercise, if needed, corrective action. And the church also can exist in that way. The church, like that embassy, reminds you of the things that your true home stands for and provides you a place to not forget who you are and where your true allegiance and identity lie. So in that regard, baptism is like getting your passport for the first time. It's where you're handed that passport and say, you are, we affirm you are a believer. That's why before we baptize people, we interview them, we talk to them, we, we hear their confession of faith so that we can affirm you are a believer in Jesus Christ. It's like getting that passport for the first time. Communion on a Sunday morning or any time that we gather together is for believers. And so as such, weekly, when we partake in communion, it's like getting that stamp in your passport saying, yes, legitimate, you're welcome, you're here, boom, there you go. And it's a reminder both to you and to the rest of the church that, oh yeah, he's, he's a part of us. I'm a part of them. We're together in this thing. And church discipline would be akin to, you like that word, akin to um, having your papers checked, <laughs> Right? Uh, I'm going to need you to hand in your passport. We're going to inspect this and uh, check your birth certificate. We're going to check your papers and make sure you really are, uh, really belong to this kingdom, right? Because truly the really only card that we have in church discipline, right? If someone really wants to buck at submitting to the authority of the church, the really only big spanking spoon that we have is to say you're cut off, right? Excommunication truly is the only great consequence or quote-unquote punishment that we can dole out. 
to a member of the church. A leader, an elder, can, be, can become not an elder and not a leader and simply remain what they already are, a member of the church. But to be excommunicated would, would require someone to be in complete ignorance of a teaching of the word with much patience that says, here's what a life lived in, in a manner that's worthy of the gospel looks like. You are out of line with what the word of God says. And they go, I don't care. I don't care. Who are you to tell me what to do? I don't care. I don't care. I don't care. I'm going to continue carrying on sinning against my brothers and sisters in Christ because I don't care about them. And then we would say, if you don't love your brother and sister in Christ, then the love of God is not in you. And you may think that you are saved. We're saying you need to check yourself before you wreck yourself at the end of time because we're seriously questioning that right now, right? And one of two things happen. Either they get so ticked off that they will simply leave. So even if we take someone's sort of, not that we're going to have a card, but you know, pull the membership card, not that we're going to have a card and you're going to turn it in, but if we say, no, not a member, which would mean not a believer, that doesn't mean that they're no longer welcome here unless the sinning that they are doing is causing disruption in the gathering of the saints and, and is sinning against the people of God in such a way that for the protection of those who are here, we have to say, you are no longer welcome to come and gather and worship here with us. That can happen, but it wouldn't be the first thing that we say. But if we're telling someone they're not a believer and they believe that they are, they're probably not going to hang around anyways. If they will, then what does our job become? Evangelism. It's, it's to say, look, you, you, you're not a believer, but let's talk about how you can become one. Let's talk about what it means to be a believer. Let's talk about the gospel again. So as we live and work and serve and play together, we're reminded that God in his sovereignty has chosen for himself a diverse people. Now, <clears throat> caveat, we are in South Central Texas, right? Like our diversity has its limits, okay? So, but we should expect an, a reflection of our community in our in our community of faith. So that if we look so homogenous that everyone in here looks the same, acts the same, is the same, same socioeconomic background, same culture, same race, same ethnicity, all these kind of things, that should give us a little bit of pause and caution. Because God has chosen a people from, for himself from every tribe and tongue and nation under heaven, right? So we should look at our community and say, right, are we a reflection of our community, the, the level of diversity that our community has? Do we see that present in our body? We should, and we should hope to, and we should want to and desire to see that. People with different gifts, talents, abilities, affinities, and even people of different races, socioeconomic backgrounds and affluence. This is simultaneously a beautiful mosaic of God's people and all the colors and shapes that make up the body of Christ. 
but it's also juxtaposed by the simple reality that our baser nature and flesh causes us to drift towards homogenous relationships and uniformity. Like our sinful, selfish nature over time will cause us to drift towards homogenous relationships. And so we've got to kind of fight against that. Why? Because people who are different than us irritate us. It's just a reality. That is part of the brokenness of sin because sin sin causes a disruption in fellowship with both God and man. And part our our brokenness is not just vertical, it's horizontal as well. And so we need God to redeem not only our vertical relationship between us and him, but also our horizontal relationship between us and the people around us. Um, here's, here's a good example. Sometimes our differences cause tension. And all the married people in the house said, Amen. Right? We, we've got to understand that the same differences that, that God has called us to celebrate in our diversity that are a beautiful picture of what God is doing in reconciling all people to himself will also cause tension. It will cause tension. We should expect it to cause tension and be ready to enter into that, that tension, believing in a God who has come to reconcile and work through that tension to bring us closer to himself and closer to each other. Amen? So like any good marriage, it is those differences that oftentimes make the relationship more meaningful and exciting. And because of this reality, there is constant attention given to the subject of unity in the New Testament. So what is Paul talking about in Philippians 1 and 2? He's talking about the unity of the body of Christ. He's not saying you should all be the same. So we're not talking about uniformity, we're talking about unity. So we can be different and still be of the same mind. We can be different and still be of the same heart. And in that is a greater, more beautiful expression of the work that God is doing through his church. So we're not looking for uniformity, we're looking for unity. And what did Paul remind us of in Philippians chapter 2? That mind that he's calling us to have is what? Already yours in Christ Jesus. So when I come and experience tension with a brother or sister in Christ, what should my prayer be? Jesus, unify me with my brother. You have already given me your, I have the mind of Christ. And so in that, God, I repent of my sinfulness against my brother or sister, my preconceived ideas about what they should or shouldn't be at this point and level of maturity in their life. I repent of wanting and expecting something from them that I am supposed to only receive from you. God, forgive me, unify me. Give us the same mind, the same heart, because it's your mind, it's your heart. Amen? So that's what we're wanting and looking for. Unity has been granted uh, to those who are in Christ Jesus. So one of the things that we have to remember when it comes to unity in the church is that it's not just a good idea. Doesn't say it's a really good idea if you guys like get along and, and be unified together. No, it's not, it's not a good idea. 
It is actually a command of the gospel, and it's part of what living a life in a manner that's worthy of the gospel looks like. Uh, This is not simply a way you can have your best church life now. This is a gospel issue. And so when there is conflict, when there is friction and tension between members of the body of Christ in the local church, and there will be, there should be. Why? Because iron sharpens iron. If we never had those moments of friction and conflict and whatever, we would never progress in our maturity in Christ. Because we'd never have any cause for him to come and say anything to us about anything. But when there's friction, what does that mean? It means that there are gospel heart issues that are at work in us. Our sin is making war with our spirit. Our flesh is making war with our spirit. And God in those moments is calling us to a new level of walking with him, a new level of intimacy with him. Why? Because in that moment, I cannot love my brother or sister in Christ on my own. I'm going to need only what God in that moment can give me to love that person because in my flesh, I want to rip their head off or I want to punch them in the throat or I want to go say bad things. If you're me, I'm kind of a violent person. But anyways, you know, however that plays out and works for you, if we avoid that altogether, we stunt our maturity in Christ. And so Jesus, in talking about church discipline in Matthew 18, doesn't say, if your brother sins against you, ignore it. He doesn't say, if your brother sins against you, just pray for him. Jesus says, if your brother sins against you, go to him and say, you sinned against me, right? And open up the door so that maturity can come in both of your lives because a couple of things are going to happen. It takes two to tango. And it may be that by going to your brother, risking that sort of trust and love and relationship and going to your brother or your sister in Christ and saying, you sinned against me, that that person may even come to you and say, well, you are like way off in la-la land. If you think that that was supposed to happen, you're expecting something that only Christ can give you. And it's like, oh, I guess I got to grow there. Or they can go, you're right. I was wrong. I'm sorry. And they can grow. We both grow. We both grow in the process. So unity has been granted to those who are in Jesus. By Jesus, we are united in him together. And we are being united in him. And by, excuse me, and being united in him, we are united to each other. It is we and not he that divides us. And to not walk in unity is not to walk in light of the gospel, which is Paul's point in Philippians 1.27. So here we go. As elders and leaders, we're called to watch over the souls of the people as those who will have to give an account. And what is it that we're looking for above all else? We are looking for lives being lived in obedience to Christ, which is a life that is lived that is worthy of the gospel. Now, are we ever going to be out of line with the gospel? Yes. Am I ever going to be out of line with the gospel? Yes. That's why I need brothers and sisters in Christ who will be gathered around me who can point me back to the gospel. Because usually, at the not usually, at the base root of all sin is the underlying sin of unbelief. Unbelief that Jesus is enough and everything that I need in him I already possess. 
Because when I'm sinning, what am I doing? I'm reaching out and I'm trying to grab for myself something that I believe I deserve or that I need that I'm supposed to be receiving fulfillment from in Christ alone. So it's always a gospel issue. And so what do I need? I need brothers and sisters in Christ who will come around me and in those moments point me back to the gospel, point me back to the God of my salvation, point me back to the one who has already provided for me everything that I need and be allowed to repent and, and, and come back to that knowledge of saving grace in that moment. In the New Testament, there are 59 times that we are called through the different books of the New Testament to do something to one another, meaning the other believers in the church. And so if you really want a good idea of what it means to live in light of the gospel, it means doing those 59 one another's with each other. What are they? Most of them are on repeat. Love one another, love one another, love one another, love one another, serve one another, greet one another, be kind to one another, be gentle with one another. All of these kind of things are things that we are called to do and can only do truly when the gospel has empowered our lives. And so we are looking for those kind of things to take shape and form in the life of the body of the church. But this means that we live out the one another's for each other, for the good of each, each other, excuse me, and we commit to do them for each other, hear me, without seeking them to be done for us. Now, did you follow that? It means I come in the door in an attitude and in a posture of doing these things for you without expecting you to do them for me in return. So the Bible calls us to love one another, to greet one another, to be kind to one another. So if I come in the doors of the church going, okay, who's going to greet me today? I, I need to be loved. Who's going to love me today? Is that what the gospel has called me to do? No, the gospel has called me to love, me to greet, me to serve, me to be kind. So I should be coming through the doors of the church or walking through my life in general going, God, who, who can I be kind to today? Who can I serve today? Who can I show your love to today? Who can I do for today? I'm looking for whom I can do this for because God has already done it for me, right? We love because he first loved us. We show kindness to each other because we have received the kindness of God in Christ Jesus. We greet one another because we have been welcomed by the God of the universe, right? And so these things all have to spring from a motivation of doing for others because God has already done for us, not doing for others so that we can get in return or waiting for people just to do it for us, right? And so that causes tension, doesn't it? There's conflict there. So here's the deal. I hope that you were greeted today. I hope that you... Get greeted today, but I hope even more that you greet somebody else. What we're talking about is attitude and motivation. So if I come to the door looking for someone to greet me, looking for someone to serve me, looking for someone to do something for me, I'm probably going to be disappointed at some level. 
And I'm probably viewing my membership in the local church more like a contract than a covenant. Remember, we use the word covenant. There's a difference between a contract and a covenant. You have a contract with your cell phone provider, right? You pay them money. They make sure that you get texting and data and calling on your phone according to how much money you have given them. It is a if-then contract where if you do your part, then they will do their part. If you fail to do your part, then they will keep from you what you are trying to get, right? Anyone been there? That's frustrating, right? Covenant is different. And where do we see covenant played out? We see it played out in marriage, right? Where we stand before God and before other people and we say, this I will do for you, the end. How like terrible, blasphemous even would it be if you went to a wedding and they got up in front of you and they're like, well, I'm going to you know, care about you when you're sick if you'll make sure that I have a meal every day. Well, I'll make sure you have a meal every day if you make sure you do the dishes every day. Well, I'll, I'll make sure I go and get a job and provide money for you if you make sure to give me what I want whenever I want it. Like, that would be horrible, right? Yeah. Now, I've, I've heard someone talk about this before, and they're like, if I hear that going on in marriage, I'm like getting up, I'm grabbing my blender on the way out because you are not selling that in the divorce and getting the money for it, right? Like, this is a bad situation. <laughs> a marriage is not meant to be a contract. It's meant to be a covenant. Right. Membership in the church is meant to be the same way. Now, it doesn't carry with it the same like, is there ever a time where you're like, you know what? You guys are getting wacky, kooky, and outside the realm of Scripture, I'm pulling my membership and going where they preach the gospel. That may need to be done. So it's not at the same level of till death do us part, but there is some hope that that could be at least a reality for some of us. I mean, how awesome would that be that, that God would allow us to journey together, to covenant together till death do us part or until Jesus comes? That's beautiful. And what does that mean? It means we go through the mess of life together. I mean, what are we saying when we go through our vows in the marriage ceremony? We're not saying, I mean, we say for better or worse, but what we mean is worse, right? We say for sick, in, in sickness and in health, but what we mean is sickness because none of us are worried about the other person bailing, bailing when we're healthy and rich, Right? What we're really covenanting in those moments is when it gets nasty, when it gets rough, I'm not bailing on you. That's covenant. And as members of the local church, that's what we are called to as well, to stick in as long as God will give us the grace to stick in there and make this journey together knowing that all of this is for our benefit in his glory. Amen. Amen. I've got like, no joke, I'm on page 10. I've got how many pages? 26 pages of notes. So we're going to like hit pause because we've got to walk through some other stuff here this morning. Um, and so I'm just trying to make sure that there's nothing crazy that we haven't kind of already hit on. I, I do want to get here because I think this is important walking into communion. In chapter 2 of Philippians, uh, verse 12, 
Paul makes this very profound statement. It's a very important um, one here in verse 12 where he says, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. So let me ask you a question. Have you ever narrowly escaped an accident of catastrophic proportions? If you ever have, there is this moment immediately following an event like that where there's a little bit of tremble, right? There's a little bit of tremble because what you've just experienced was so close to being the end or really, really bad that, that the adrenaline and everything that's pumping through your body just causes you to tremble a little bit and you, you realize just how narrowly you have escaped. Um, hear me. The work of salvation is all of God. It is 100% of God. And if it was not for the hundred percent of God doing what he did to save you, you would be lost, finished. And we should live with a healthy amount of realization of how narrowly we have escaped damnation. Because if salvation was even 1% counting on me, let me just testify. If there was even 1%, if God was like, I'm going to take care of 99%, Mike, all you got to do, buddy, is pull through on the 1%. Let me testify this morning and bear witness to the absolute reality that I would have driven myself willingly to help by the end of it, willingly. And bear in mind that there is no one who will not willingly drive themselves to hell because salvation is all of God. It is 100% of God. And that, that kind of causes me to tremble a little bit. Because I have to live with a realization of just how scandalous is the grace of God. Just how scandalous is the grace and the mercy of God. Because if it was even 1% up to me, I would be lost. And God of his own choosing, by his great design, chose before the foundation of the world to set his affection on me. And if you are here today, it is not an accident. If you sit under the proclamation of the gospel week in and week out, it is not by your own choice. But it is because God in his grace, by his own design, has chosen that you shall do so. And in doing so, you must know, no one seeks for God. Romans chapter 3. No one understands. And if God has designed so that you would hear the proclamation of the gospel, it must mean that he has in some way set his affections on you. And if he has, it's only a matter of time. It's only a matter of time. And I pray for that day.
If you're a believer, you have narrowly escaped something of catastrophic proportions, and it, there should be a healthy amount of fear and trembling about it because I'm not alone. If it was up to you, you would be lost too. Now, this isn't just panic and alarm, but it's awe and it's reverence, which does what? It causes us to worship God. God, thank you. Thank you for your grace. Thank you for your mercy. Thank you that if it was up to me, I would be lost. But God, you have rescued me. You have saved me. You sent your son for me. He did what I could not do. He paid the price that I could not pay. God, because of that, I can be saved. Thank you, God. But here, here also the command to take responsibility for your own discipleship. Work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. There is still this call to work out your own discipleship. That's something that you have to take responsibility for. I cannot take responsibility for your discipleship. I can do my best to help you along the way, but I am not the one responsible for your discipleship. I am responsible for watching over your soul as one who will have to give an account, but you are responsible for your discipleship. That means when it comes to reading the word of God, to getting together with other uh, disciples, other believers, that it's up to you to, to really do that or not. And I can get up here and I can tell you how important it is. I can get the cattle prod of the word of God and like poke you with it every single week and tell you what the word of God says. But it's ultimately up to you to say, I'm really going to engage in this and be a disciple of Christ and be responsible for my discipleship. But here, and, and that can be a little scary, like really it's up to me? Yes, but listen to the next verse. This is why I think it's so important we get here before we go to communion. Immediately following the beautiful announcement of grace that Paul has in verse 13, for it is God working in you, giving you, both the desire and the will to do what pleases him. So God doesn't just say, there you go, buddy, work it out. You can do it. But he says, no. In the middle of this, I'm going to give you a gift of grace, both the desire and the will. What does this mean? It means the want to and the power to do what pleases God. So there's nothing that he is going to ask you to do, nothing that he's going to call you to do that he has not also promised to give you the desire and the power to do as well. And I can just be real, there's some times where I don't want to. And there's some times that I want to, but I feel I don't have the power to. And it's in those moments that what? Oh, believe it or not, I have to rely on Jesus? What? You mean I don't get to just do this Christian thing in my own effort and strength and take credit for it at the end of the day? Paul says, let it not be so that no one may boast. It will all be of grace and by grace alone. And hear this. This is not just any grace or another grace. This is the same grace that got you in, keeping you in, 
And the same grace that will be forever sustaining you until the end. Amen? Amen. I'm going to ask the guys to come up here. Um, and we're going to enter into a time of communion here at the end of our service. What this means for us, and I'm just going to have to go off my notes now, but what this means for us, and we didn't get to get into a lot of discipline type stuff, but we're going to walk through a little bit of that right now. What this means for us is that we have an opportunity to live in submission, glad submission to the body of Christ. And when we covenant together as members of the body of Christ, part of what we are saying is, I am choosing to live in submission, not only to the authority of the elders in the church, but also to the other members of this church. And discipline truly should be walked out, hopefully in most circumstances, with the least number of people possible in every situation. And what that means is you need some people who know you and whom you know, where you can know and be known. And, and so one of the things that we have encouraged you to do is to find two or three other people of the same gender that you can meet with on a weekly basis and read and study the Word of God together. But in that time, also, it provides an opportunity for you to confess sin and things in your life, to enter into that rhythm of repent, confession, repentance, and reconciliation with those two or three other people that over a period of time you've built up trust and relationship with and you've said, you know what, I'm going to submit to you in a sense that I'm going to come and as we read things together and we find things together in the word of God where our lives don't line up with what is being said here, we're going to confess those things together. So hear me, it's not, I mean, it can be if need be. If you need to come into those some of those gatherings where you're meeting with people, you're reading the Bible together, and you go, look, this has nothing to do with what we read this week, but I already know I'm living outside the, the light of the gospel in this area, and I need to confess it to you. Can you do that? Yes. But I'm not saying let's get together every week and it's like, so how did you sin this week? Well, I sinned this way. And how did you sin? I sinned this way. Yeah, well, I blew it here. That's not what I'm saying. There may be times where you need to take some initiative and say, hey, guys, this is kind of a big deal. And I need to confess this to you this morning. I need to confess. I need to repent. I need to believe. I need you to pray for me. That's fine. Really what that should look like is as you read the word of God together, here's this beautiful thing about the word of God. It's perfect and you're not. Right. And so as you read the word of God together, there are going to come times where your life does not line up with perfection. And as you read those things together and you confess, you begin to confess those things together and repent those things together, that's what I'm talking about. And in those moments, you say, wow, what we read this week, did you know this was in here? No, I didn't know. Well, I knew, but I still wasn't doing it. Gosh, we need Jesus. And we repent in those moments. We pray for each other. And guess what happens there? Where there's repentance, there doesn't need to be discipline. I mean, that, in a sense, was the discipline. You come together, you confess, there's repentance, there's reconciliation. We move on in maturity in Christ together. That's beautiful. That's where the beginnings of that should be happening. Where there is obvious things in that where 
someone's like, well, I don't care what it says. I'm, I'm not going to do that. And it's like, well, but brother, this is what the Bible says. I don't care. Then it's like, okay, well, we're going to go get the elders because you need to care <laughs> about what this says. And so the elders come along and, and hear the situation and they, and they investigate kind of what's going on. And, and, and it's like, well, yeah, actually, um, yes, you, you do need to do this or not do this or whatever the case may be. And they go, well, I don't care. Well, then let's talk about your salvation. Because if you have been saved, then the Holy Spirit lives in you and should be giving you desires that line up with the Word of God. So why are your desires, why, why do you desire not to do what the Word of God's calling you to do? And so we have to have a real conversation there. I mean, some things can get serious. If, if we've got someone who's beating their wife, we're going to have a serious conversation with this brother about what it means to walk in light of the gospel. If, if there's a woman who is cheating on her husband, we're going to have a serious talk about what it means to live in light of the gospel. And you've got to kind of make a choice here. Are you doing this because you're not a believer and you're just doing what you're supposed to be doing, which is sin, which means we need to have a conversation about the gospel in general? Or are you a believer who's living in sin and needs to confess and repent and be brought into reconciliation? There is still a beautiful expression of true theology and the gospel through every single one of these things. And in that, our hearts can still be inflamed. Inflamed about membership in the local church? Yes, why? Because membership in the local church means adoption into God's family. God did not save you so that you can have a personal relationship with Jesus Christ all by yourself. God saved you because he had chosen to adopt you into his family. And your salvation means that you get a personal relationship with Jesus Christ. And that's beautiful. So can we praise God for membership in the local church? Yes and amen. Why? Because membership in the local church means adoption in God's family. And that's something to celebrate and to worship God for. Amen? So we're going to do that.